Welcome to the Close-Minded Podcast, where we read with an open mind in order to close it again on something solid. Today, we're going to talk about some things that will get you kicked out of polite society. It's progressive and fashionable these days to talk about the patriarchy, capital P, and the oppression of women, their hard-won equality from the shackles of home life, and the immense sexual power that men wield over women in society. But what if everything our culture believes about these things is wrong? What if traditional morality and gender roles actually function as protections for women and limitations for men? What if most of the sexual power in a society is actually controlled by women? What if these claims are self-evident if you slow down and think clearly about them? And finally, what if you can arrive at these conclusions without once referencing religion? My guest today is Greg Crable, and he dares to make and defend these contrarian claims in a book that he wrote entitled, Eggs Are Expensive, Sperm Is Cheap, 50 Politically Incorrect Thoughts for Men. Greg hails from Maryland, where he's enjoying a career in the professional publishing world. When he's not skewering the sacred cows of feminism and modern culture, he loves to discuss good books over beer, anything from philosophy, history, and politics, to Tolkien, the Dune books, Sherlock Holmes, P.G. Woodhouse, Mark Twain, and C.S. Lewis. So basically, I want to be like Greg when I grow up. I think you'll find our conversation challenging and rewarding. Greg Crable, welcome to the Close Minded Podcast. Well, thanks so much. I'm really glad to be here. So you've written a book, which I'm sure has turned um, some heads <laughs> when they see it, and maybe even um, generated some ire. I can't imagine why, but it's called uh, Eggs Are Expensive, Sperm Is Cheap. So let's just dive right in. Tell me what you mean by that generally, and then we can go into all the different things that flow out from that basic insight. Sure. So at some point, I need to tell you what the original title was, but uh, Eggs Are Expensive, Sperm Is Cheap is a is a phrase that you'll hear from time to time on the internet when people talk about uh, men's issues and women's issues. And the point is that a man produces sperm all the time, and it really doesn't inconvenience him in any way to get rid of some of it. Where a woman only has a certain number of eggs, she they're only fertile a certain number of days during the month, and she really can't have that many children. Uh, the woman who had the most children ever recorded is a woman named Mrs. Uh, Vasileyev, I think. She had 27 births and 69 children. Obviously, some were multiple births. She had twins and triplets. Uh, but, I mean, that's that's really amazing. Someone would have 69 children. A woman would have 69 children. Compare that with uh, Genghis Khan, who may have had two or 3,000 women in his harem. Or uh, Magic Johnson, who claimed to have sex with three to 500 women per year. So the idea of the limits on a woman's procreation versus the limits on a man's procreation, it's pretty obvious that a woman can only have a, a much, much fewer uh, children than a man can have. So a man approaches the whole uh, economics of sex and procreation from a totally different perspective because he can conceivably anyway have lots and lots of descendants where a woman is much more limited in what, in uh, how many kids she can have. Okay. So uh, I certainly follow the logic of uh, sperm versus eggs, but what, what makes them uh, expensive versus cheap in terms of some of the, so the cultural implications? Let, let's think about, um, you know, men sacrificing or men being, let's start with men being disposable. Tell me about that. 
Yeah. So let me back up just to touch and explain a bit about the expensive part, because I, I was talking about something being rare. One thing that makes something expensive is when it's rare, right? So the fact that a woman uh, only has can have so many children, that makes that rare and therefore makes it expensive. But another uh, way to look at the expense of it is when a woman gets pregnant, it really changes her life. She is, um, her life is radically changed, at least for the short term, very substantially, where when a man fathers a child, it really doesn't change him much at all. So the, they're both going into the, the game in, from a radically different perspective. Now, the idea of men being disposable is if you think about this from a cultural perspective, if you, if you say, I, I want to have a successful population, then wh- what are the resources I have to protect? Well, societies historically have decided that women and children have to be protected and that men are disposable in the service of women and children. That's why we send men out to war and not women. Uh, you, can, you can lose a lot of men and still have a viable culture. You can't lose a lot of women and children and still have a, vi- a viable culture. So from that perspective, men are disposable in the service of the culture and in the service of women and children because you know, one man like King Solomon famously had 300 wives and 600 concubines. And in a certain situation, you could have one man with multiple women, but it doesn't do much good to have um, one woman, woman with multiple men. So the fact that, you know, Solomon had so many wives and so many concubines, you know, would seem to indicate that, you know, the, the previous sort of modern uh, or pre-modern, you know, traditional culture of of marriage and, you know, different from what we have now would have been oppressive to women, but you argue the exact opposite. Yes. Yeah, so I don't want to call when you say traditional, you have to be a little careful about what tradition you mean. So in, in certain cultures, it's common for one man, the, the dominant man, in this case, King Solomon to kind of hoard the women. And a lot of, obviously there aren't 300 wives, 300 women for every man. So if Solomon's going to have 300 wives, somebody else is going to have no none. So there are situations in certain cultures where the successful men have a lot of women in their harem and a lot of men have no women whatsoever, right? They're just out of luck. They're a, a dead end as far as genetics are concerned. So when I speak in my book about the traditional view of marriage, I'm thinking more of the days of Sherlock Holmes or that sort of thing. I'm thinking more of a traditional Western, uh, relative, relatively modern, but not, not 20th century or 21st century, more like 18th century, that kind of a view of men's roles and women's roles and how they should relate to one another. And that's in the context of monogamy. Um, obviously, it's very different when you have a situation where one man can have hundreds or thousands of, of women. So do you think it's fair to say maybe the contrast should be, you know, we look at the differences between a culture that um, you know, sort of harnesses and drives men and women into particular roles and particular functions in order to accomplish particular ends and, and goals. And so we've got a sharp distinction between, say, you know, the marriage culture of Sherlock Holmes Day versus what we have today where, you know, everybody's liberated, um, you know, you can have unlimited sexual partners. Uh, there's sort of a free marketplace for, you know, love and egalitarianism. Uh, is that, do you think, is that the, the main sort of distinctions that were, you want to draw? 
Well, that is that is one of the distinctions. So if you think about it this way, uh, one of my brothers says one way to measure culture is what does a young man need to do to have sex? And I think that's an interesting way of looking at it. If if let's say let's imagine that we're back in Sherlock Holmes's day, and here's this young fellow who decides that he wants to have sex. Well, what does he have to do? He's got to get a decent education. He's got to get a job. He's got to be respectful and respectable to the woman's parents because they're they're going to be the the gatekeepers of him even being able to talk to this woman. Then he has to court her. He has to uh, you know pay for dinner. He has to be a respectable guy. There's a lot of hoops he's got to jump through. He's got to be somebody. He's got to have prospects. He's got to be able to support the family. So all this stuff he's doing just on the chance of maybe he's going to be able to marry this woman. And in that culture, if you're going to reserve marriage to or reserve sex to marriage, then he's got to do all this stuff before he can have sex. Now, what does that do to young men? That men, uh, young men have a very, very strong sex drive and they, they want to have sex. So if they realize I've got to jump through all these tubes, what you're, what you're doing is you're taking the male sex drive and you're ordering it and you're uh, using it to create a whole culture full of young men who are trying to be successful and respectful and dress well and be polite to the young lady's father. And that's an unquestionable good for society where you have, uh, you're using this drive, this natural drive to push young men to make something of themselves. Now contrast that with what we have now where some guy lives in his parents' basement until he's 30 and he doesn't have any particular incentive to, to dress well, to do anything, to have any, any, uh, any drive. And I think a big part of that is that sex, either real sex or virtual sex, is available on the cheap. So what we're not harnessing that sex drive to push men to make something of themselves. If we had an environment where the only way a young man could reasonably expect to have sex is if he had to be a responsible guy and get a job and be professional and dress well and wake up at six in the morning and all that sort of thing, then you'd have a completely different set of young men than what we have nowadays. So the way that you just described it, you know, as you say elsewhere, you said, if anything, the traditional approach oppresses men. But that sort of seems to fly in the face by, you know, the mainstream narrative today, which is that women were oppressed and enslaved by, you know, a tradition of monogamy and being, you know, in, in the home and they're not allowed to work and they don't have lives and they're just there to serve their husbands and be enslaved to child rearing. Uh, why is that a false narrative? Yeah, so there's a lot of reasons. I think it's it's a shame that we try to express these things in terms of are women oppressed or are men oppressed? Who, who has the upper hand and all this? I think the actual situation is that men and women have been cooperating in trying to form relationships and families and trying to get along. And they're both trying to use what they bring to the table to create a stable family for a stable relationship between the two of them and a stable family where they can raise children. And men and women both sacrifice and men and women are both put upon. The man doesn't particularly want to go uh, climb down a hole in the ground and dig coal but men will do that so they can provide for their families. Or think of the things men do nowadays. They, the, who does the dangerous jobs? Who goes out on the Alaskan uh, 
fishing boats to go out and get Alaskan king crab legs. You know, that's a dangerous job. And men do those sorts of things because men are, are wired to do the dangerous stuff. And it's not, it's just wrong to think of this in terms of oppression and privilege. It's not a question of oppression and privilege. It's a question of men and women are different. Men have certain things that they're better at and women have certain things that they're better at. And a, a successful society will try to use those the, the relative strengths of the two sexes to form a stable a society that benefits not just them, but their children. Because obviously a society isn't going to last long unless they have an effective way to raise responsible citizens. And that means, that really means having uh, stable families where children are raised and nurtured and taught, you know, how to eat with a fork and knife and all the kind of things that families do with kids. And that's because men and women have learned to get along. And this whole idea of trying to express this in terms of women being oppressed or, or anything, it's, it's really not helpful. I, so if you think about women, are women being oppressed when men say the, the ship is sinking and men say women and children first? Are women being oppressed when there's a danger and you know the Hun is invading and the men go out with the sharp sticks to try to stop them? Are women being oppressed in that situation? I don't think so. Now, obviously women have borne a, a heavy load themselves. Women have often died in childbirth. Women um, have a, a lot of uh, a hardship in their own lives. They, they, it's not easy. If, when, the, when the men go out with the sharp sticks to stop the hun and they fail, it's not so great for the women. So um, it's, it's not as if one side is oppressing and the other side is being oppressed. It's that both of them are trying to use their gifts and their talents towards the service of a stable society and family. So what do you think is is the end game or the purpose behind this egalitarianism that we're seeing today, where the mainstream culture says men and women are interchangeable, women can do anything that men can do, and should have all the same rights and privileges that men supposedly do? What What's going on here? Well, a lot of people think that the early feminist movement was born out of a just some women who were very resentful. They... Um, if you think about what a lot of feminism is about, is it takes things that are traditional feminine virtues and says those aren't important. And it looks at things that are t traditional male virtues and says those are the only ones that are really important, like being able to have a job or being able to be in the armed services, or you know, as if that's some great privilege that men get to go out and die in war, right? So the, the early feminists looked at the, the male's role, male role, and said, boy, that's great. And they looked at the female role and said, gee, that's horrible. But that's just a, a ridiculous, um, distorted way of trying to view what was really going on. I don't think that men were privileged when they walked out on the dock to, uh, you know, catch some fresh air. And the king's representatives came and grabbed them and threw them on the ship and said, sorry, you're a sailor for the next three years. And you're out you know, out in the ocean fighting wars that you didn't have anything to do with. That's not privilege, but that's the way a lot of feminists tried to portray things, that men, men were privileged in various ways. So I think feminism started off from resentment and from a distorted view of males and females. It devalued women and motherhood and marriage, and it uh, held up to a ridiculous high standard this idea of 
you know, this so-called privilege of being out and being able to go out and work in the world. I don't consider that such a great privilege to tell you the truth. I mean, a job is a job. It's not a privilege. It's just something you go do. Talk about the the fallacy or at least the unfair comparison of taking the best of office life and holding it up against the worst of homemaking life. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's a common trick that you hear when people are talking about how men are so privileged. So they'll talk, they'll look at a New York City ad exec or they'll look at some man who has a, a pretty good life. You know, he's got a secretary, he's got a, he's got a good job, he's got a desk, he's got a corner office, he gets, um, gets to live the high life working in this job. And then compare that with the, the poor housewife who's ironing shirts for a man she doesn't love and she's cooking meals for a man she doesn't love and she's just stuck at home and, and hates her life and doesn't have any friends. I and mean, that, that's a, a ridiculous caricature of what life is like just to begin with. That's really not anybody's life is like that. But it's also picking this idealized version of what a man's life and his career is like and comparing that with a really crappy version of what a woman's life and her in her life could be like. And I think it forgets that that a lot of men, most men, work jobs that they don't like. And they work those jobs simply because they they pay well and they can support their family that way. Men, I don't think a lot of men who work in factories really enjoy working in factories. And I really doubt men who go dig coal really enjoy digging coal. It's just something that they do to support the family. And on the other hand, women uh, who are, are working at home to, to you know keep home and raise children and all that kind of thing, well, maybe they enjoy some of it, maybe they don't enjoy some of it. But to try to... Uh, characterize all of that as oppressive and menial and everything else. I, I don't think that's true at all. Personally, I love children. I would love to stay home and raise kids. That's, I think that's be a wonderful thing. And the idea of going out and, uh, you know, chopping down trees, which is an incredibly dangerous job or working on a fishing boat or working as a, as a roughneck on an oil platform or working on a, any, any of these jobs that men do, that is not privilege. So what's happened is the, the male's role has been idealized as if it's some great thing. And the female role has been only the bad things have been brought out and said, this is what the women are stuck with. Yeah, you say in the book, I'm going to quote here, he says, the survival of the species requires that women have a safe place to have and raise these helpless little tykes. Somebody has to go out into the world and tame the wilderness. How that came to be called oppression is one of the mysteries that sociologists will be studying for centuries. Yeah, I think it's a little silly to think that because men get to go out and die in battle or men get to go out and um, you know, hunt, which can be a dangerous thing, or any number of the other dangerous things that men do, that that's somehow a privilege. I, I think that's a little silly. You know, men working at night on roads where there's a very high fatality rate for that. Or think of men who work in sanitation. Sanitation is a, is a very, very dangerous job. People, a lot of people don't realize that, that people who work in sanitation trucks get injured a lot. They get, they get run over. They get hurt by things that, that people shouldn't have thrown away, uh, chemicals that come out things that cut them. It's a very dangerous job. But men are willing to do that sort of thing because men have, as part of their, uh, their psychological makeup, is they're supposed to be out making money, having a career so that they can support a family. And I don't see how that's privilege in any way. 
Yeah, w- one of the things that sort of drives me crazy is that the 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 egalitarians or the feminists want to they want to have it both ways. So on on one hand, you know they 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 say that men and women are interchangeable, and they even go to the extreme, you know, of sort of the transgender ideology, which is is a you know a cult that says you know if you decide you're a woman, then you're a woman, and it's all based on your feelings and the the biology and the the science has no bearing at all on on what you are, and so respect me for the choice that I'm making, despite you know what what the chromosomes say. But then on the other hand. They want to, uh, you know, establish some sort of, you know, protection for for women. This concept of, you know, protect women from sexual harassment, which of course I agree with, and any right-thinking person would agree with that. But if if there's nothing that is distinctly defined as woman against what a man is, then what does it mean to protect women? What does it mean to believe women? What does it mean to say that women are, are experience sexual assault at higher rates? Than man, if you know, in your previous sentence, you just denied the basic distinctions between men and women. Yeah, so that there's a lot of reasons for that. I, I have a couple of little side notes I want to mention, and then I'll get back to that topic. The first one is this is actually going to play really well in Joe Biden's favor because you know he promised to have a, a female running mate, but all he really needs to do is find a man who identifies as a woman, and he's set. But so there's that. But then also, I don't, I don't know if you knew this, but just recently there was some um, debate in Congress about a, a Violence Against Women Act, which I mean, nobody wants violence against women. That sounds great. But imagine if there was a Violence Against Men Act. If somebody proposed a Violence Against Men Act, there would be screams and howls and what a horrible thing. How can you possibly have a Violence Against Men Act? Why don't you just have a <laughs> Violence Against Anybody Act? How about that? But the reason, the reason that we have this dichotomy, the reason this whole egalitarian thing doesn't work is because human beings know deep down that they have to protect and defend women. Everybody knows that. It's built into our, into our genes. We have to protect women because eggs are expensive. It's, you can't go around throwing away women's lives. We have to protect women. That's, that's part of who we are. So anytime that a woman is threatened, we naturally say, wait a minute, we got to stop that. We, let's have a Violence Against Women Act. Let's, let's um, make sure that we have uh, shelters for women who are battered. Let's make sure that we're, we're taking care of the women. Everybody agrees with that. But then as soon as the shoe's on the other foot and you find out that actually there are men who are battered too, where are the shelters for battered men? There's like one in the whole country. There's, where's the, where's the uh, Violence Against Men Act? Where's the idea that we should protect men? It's, it's nowhere. If, you know, it's, very, it's common nowadays. People joke about the treatment that men get in prison, right? And horrible things supposedly happen to men in prison. Well, if that sort of stuff was happening to women in prison, there'd be an outcry and we'd stop it. But it's okay for it's happening, it's happening to men because we don't have any particular reason to want to defend and protect men. That's just not the way we are. So we're stuck in this, in this spiral Anything that would protect and defend women, we naturally want to do. Anything that would protect and defend men, we think, ah, you don't need that. They're men. So it's just the natural progression of that kind of thinking is going to lead to the kind of distorted, twisted ideology we have nowadays, where men and women are equal, except when that's not the benefit of women to be equal. And I'm not saying this to criticize women. I, I don't mean that. What I mean is, because we naturally want to defend women and we should defend women, that's right and proper and what we should be doing. 
because we have that natural feeling, any effort to try to do to make equality is automatically going to be twisted and go into a spiral. Hey guys, the CDC is recommending that every American wear a face mask or some sort of covering out in public. If you're into that sort of thing, then why not get a mask that is meaningful and memorable? Well, I have personally designed a handful of cloth masks that you can buy. They are machine washable and reusable. They're 100% polyester. They're made in the USA and they're hand sewn. I've got some inspirational designs, including a few that are region specific, like Kansas City or Missouri or Kansas as a state. I also have a patriotic one, uh, introvert, extrovert ones, and even a design that references the Chronicles of Narnia for my fellow C.S. Lewis nerds out there. And finally, for anyone with a uh, darker, slightly cynical sense of humor, I have masks for you too. I won't describe them here, but you can peruse everything over at closemindedpodcast.com slash mask. That link will also be in the show notes, so don't wait. If you want to purchase a bulk order, I can give you a 25% discount. Just reach out to me via email or on my page on Facebook or Instagram, and I will send you a special link to do that. Thanks for supporting the show. Again, closemindedpodcast.com slash mask. You do a pretty good job of just sort of laying out the practical realities and and presenting an argument for why uh, you know tradition the traditional approach to marriage is a good thing both for men and for women in terms of uh, the complementarity of their relationships um, partnering together to you know build a civilization and, and a society that people want to live in uh, to raise children to harness the sexual drive of men uh, into productive purposes all of those things. And yet we're seeing today this sort of, you know, abandoned ship by a bunch of men against the idea of getting married at all in the first place. Right. Uh, why is that? And, and what, are the, what does that look like? Yeah. So it's called the marriage strike. And what's happened is as this, I, I keep talking about the spiral, as the spiral is getting worse and worse, the bargain is getting worse and worse for men. That men, for example, let's take no fault divorce. It used to be that in order to divorce, you had to have cause. The person had to have cheated on you or they had to beat you or something. There, there had to be some fault before you could divorce somebody. Now you can just say, I'm, I'm tired of this marriage and be done and, and get a divorce. So men are thinking, what, why am I sacrificing to provide for this family? Why am I you know, I'm going out and I'm working a job I hate so that I can bring money home so I can support this family. When all of a sudden my wife can just say, I'm tired of you and marry somebody else. And she gets the house and the kids, so the kids are calling somebody else dad. So that's a pretty, that's a pretty lousy bargain. Right now, of course it's bad for the women too. If men want to leave them, I'm not, I'm not saying that that's a good deal for women, but from a man's perspective, he's expected to be the, the provider for this family that can just suddenly blow up on him. And when that does happen, when a marriage does blow up, family courts are not uh, kind to men. The family courts, generally speaking, give custody to the women. Generally speaking, they, they're much more solicitous towards women. And we already, we've already talked about this. That's naturally what we do. We naturally defend and protect women. So it's, it's normal that the family courts would want to defend and protect women. That's, that's what humanity does. So, and then look at the culture. Um, if, if you had a commercial, if you had, let's say you had a bunch of car commercials that regularly made women out to look like oaks and idiots and uh, criminals, 
then there would be criticism that people would yell and scream and complain as they should and say, don't do this. Don't portray women that way. Men are regularly portrayed as oafs and criminals and, and everything else. And nobody says a word. If you go to a college campus, you might see flyers posted up all over the place about saying that men are potential rapists or here, here are these, you know, men are naturally rapists. Well, that's a, that's a lie. But it's okay to say lies about men because nobody seems to care. So what's happened is the whole bargain for, for marriage has completely changed. Now, the other side of this that I haven't touched on yet is the economics of sex. That's where I was getting next. Yeah. So in, the, in Sherlock Holmes's day, if a young man wanted to have sex, he had to do certain things. He had to, he had to jump through hoops. He had to be respectable, dress nice, buy flowers, all this stuff. The economics of sex have changed so much that sex is now cheap. Um, and the cheapening of sex doesn't help women because they're bringing less to the table. They have less to bargain with. There's an old saying that, that uh, you know, men trade uh, commitment to get sex and women trade sex to get commitment. And when sex becomes cheap, they have less to bargain with. There's a great uh, video on YouTube by the Heartland Institute, I think, called The Economics of Sex that your viewers should, should listen to. It's a fantastic video. And it talks about how when the value of sex goes down, that hurts the women more than it hurts the men because the men are perfectly happy. You know, people talk about uh, the old system, the Sherlock Holmes system was oppressive and male-centered and all that. That's exactly backwards. It's the modern system that, that follows what men want. What, what do men want? Men want cheap, easy sex without commitment. And that's exactly what they've got. And it doesn't help men. And it certainly doesn't help women because women who used to be able to say, look, you know, what, what's the song by the, um, oh gosh, uh, oh, the Georgia Satellites, the Georgia Satellites have a great song about a woman saying, you know, no kissing until I was a ring on my finger. And um, gosh, I wish I could remember the name of the song, but your, your listeners should look it up and listen to the song. And it's because women used to have something to bargain with. Okay, you, you want me? Fine. But you got to get a job and you got to be respectful and you got to propose. You got to be pleasing to my, you know, make sure my dad likes you and all that kind of stuff. That was far, far better for women and for families than what we've got now. Yeah, that, that economics of sex video is, is really fantastic. And it's a real paradigm shifter. It just sort of flips the traditional understanding on its head. And I think it does it really well. Um, I will link to that in the show notes. So coming out of that, that concept, in terms of what do we do? You know, is it is it that women as an entire gender sort of hold the keys to the you know that harness that's on the male sex drive in society? Uh, it's very difficult for a particular woman, you know, uh, one by herself, to pursue you know what we would call this traditional lifestyle that we're advocating. If all of her peers have drastically you know quote unquote lowered the price of sex and reduced the barrier of entry, and pun intended on that. For men, you know, if women collectively decide to restrict access to sex, then it will force men to sort of man up and jump through the hoops that are actually necessary and good for society. But how do we encourage that? Yeah, well, it's it's, it's very difficult. Imagine a traditionally minded young lady going to college and all the college girls are dressing in uh, provocative clothing and they're going out with guys left and right. And this woman is trying to think, no, I, I want guys to 
to pursue me and respect me and let's get to know each other first and all this other kind of stuff. She's not going to have any luck because everybody else has lowered the value of sex to such an extent. Why is some guy going to jump through all these hoops and go to all this trouble to get her when he has, doesn't have to jump through any hoops whatsoever to get Susie or Sally or Jane, right? So it, when the value of sex is decreased like that, it hurts women. It actually hurts women more than it hurts men because that's what men want. Um, but so how do we change it? Well, I think it has to be changed in small communities. I think the only way this is really going to work is for people in their own uh, communities to say, we're going to uphold this standard. And if, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to think this way because I like to think of America as a, a culture, the whole culture, the melting pot. We've got this great, big, great American culture. But the, the American culture is almost too bad to redeem. And I think the only way this is going to work is for individual people to decide, no, this is the way I'm going to live my life. And I'm going to be with like-minded people who, who have the same sorts of values. And within that culture, you can uphold those kinds of standards. You're not going to be able to do it at the university. You're not going to be able to do it on television. You're not going to be able to do it in the culture at large, but you can do it in, in a smaller community. And I think that's what has to happen. So for those of us that are more traditionally minded towards those sorts of values, do we just need to, you know, sort of do a, a strategic withdrawal from the rest of society? You know, I'm, I'm not a retreat, but just, you know, d- d- focus on building up and defending our own institutions that uphold the values that we care about and inculcate them into our children. Yeah, I think so. And <clears throat> this reminds me a little bit of a conversation I had with with one of my boys when he was dating a young lady. And we were talking about, I, this was while I was writing this book, and we were talking about, uh, you know, what kind of woman he should be looking for. And he took it to heart and realized that I, I told him that if you're, you don't even think about dating a modern feminist, it's just, it's not going to be good. It's going to ruin your life. It's going to ruin her life. It's going to be a disaster. So set the standard and look for a young lady who agrees with your values, who, um, that you can actually respect and the two of you hold up a different standard. And that's what he did. And he married this fantastic young lady and I'm very proud of him. But the, what has to happen is people need to say, we're, we're not going to live by those standards. We're going to live by different standards. And if the world wants to go a different way, that's fine. And you know, think about it. There are a lot of cultures that do that sort of thing. I'm not trying to hold them up as the greatest example in the world, but the Amish, for example, they have a, a separate culture and they do things their way. A lot of other groups, uh, Jews tend to, uh, conservative Jews anyway, tend to have a, a culture among themselves. And, and there are different groups. It used to be that Catholics were that way, not so much anymore. You know, Catholics would have separate schools and they would try to have their own culture there. Um, and I think we need to get back to that. This idea of the melting pot has really not worked out well. And it's time for people to decide to have their own, their own culture and live inside of that. Sounds like an argument for political decentralization and localism and focus on smaller communities. Yeah. So what's GK Chesterton's uh, famous economic idea, the three, three, uh, three acres and a cow or something like that. The, uh, so I'm, I'm not going that far. He had, distri- was it distributism? 
yeah, that's that, that's it. Distributed, and I'm not I'm not advocating that, but I do think that there has to be a cultural separation. And it made me really sad when there there was a a movie service that would take movies and edit out the bad stuff so that you could watch them at home with your children. And I thought, what a fantastic thing! You know, I'd like my kids to be able to see these movies, but usually, in an hour and a half movie, it's it's um, it's 80 minutes of good stuff and 10 minutes of garbage. Well, they cut out the 10 minutes and you could watch the, the rest of the movie with your family. And then that turned out to the courts struck that down. And that was a big shame. But I think to some extent, there needs to be a, a movement towards people making their own, um, coming up with their own culture, coming up with their own community and living in that community and just saying, sorry, that's the way it's going to be. I'm I'm not going to marry somebody outside of this community. They have to have have my values. And another thing I want to touch on, because we've been sort of circling around this topic a lot, and a lot of your listeners are going to assume that the only way you can defend traditional morality as far as uh, the sexes are concerned is from a religious point of view. And one of the one of the things I tried to do very hard in this book was to make it very clear that that's not true at all. The arguments I raise in this book are not religious views, not religious positions. They're simply based on the nature of man and women and what we can see around us all the time. It's based on natural law, regular reason, and what we can see in the animal kingdom and what we can see about men and women. And I think traditional morality does not depend on religious presuppositions. I think it's just an obvious way that it's the way we are. And uh, we should follow it because it's it's kind of like, you know, you don't want to put Kool-Aid in your gas tank in your car because your car is not made to run on Kool-Aid. You want to put gasoline in your car. And humans should not be trying to run their lives according to something that's not consistent with their nature. Yeah, well said. And I did notice that as well. I noticed that you went out of your way to ground those arguments without mentioning anything about religion or faith. Not that those don't have anything to say into the, all of these topics. They certainly do. But just in terms of making it publicly accessible to people that may not be Christians, for example. Um, yeah, I thought you made those arguments well. Uh, I think the service you were referring to is, is VidAngel. Is that the, what you were thinking of? That would cut that out one, content. That was one of them. That's right. You know, they, they've they're actually still alive. They've they've made it. They've had to change their model like three or four times because they've been sued almost into oblivion. But they've managed to survive, and uh, they're still going. And I think they uh, basically their model now is that they sit on top of your existing streaming services. So they'll connect to Amazon or to Netflix or Hulu or HBO or whatever, and then. They basically intercept the stream and they've got algorithms that cut out whatever it is that you want to cut out and then deliver it to you. And that one, I believe, has survived in the courts, but I'm not entirely sure, but they are still alive. Well, that's great. And I'd like to see see more of that because, you know, I like to watch a good movie and I like to watch a, a good TV show. But there are things that well, my children are, are old and grown and it's not an issue. But uh, when my children were younger, we had to be very careful about what we wanted to let them watch. and you know, it's just, it's just a shame that there's so much garbage that you have to wade through and, and sort through. And it'd be nice if, it'd be nice if there were cleaner alternatives. And I, I'm, I hope that Angel does well. The song, by the way, is Keep Your Hands to Yourself by the Georgia Satellites. That's the ah. uh, song I was mentioning before. All right. I will, I will link to that as well in the show notes. Okay. Um, 
Well, we've managed to basically cover the first half of your book, and we could probably go for twice as long going through the second half, which, you know, for my audience gets very practical uh, and and less philosophical and just dives into uh, the mechanics of, you know, alpha and beta qualities of masculinity, you know, how to talk to women, what it means to be the head of the home, um, you know, how to prepare to be called a sexist. You should expect it and embrace it if it's the right kind of sexism. Um personal qualities, just things that, that every man needs to know if he's going to, you know, be respected and respectable and actually accomplish something with his life in terms of uh, marrying a good woman and raising good kids and, and doing something well. Um, so, but I want, I want you to read the book. It's, it's really cheap on Amazon. It's only a few bucks. Um, I commend it to you. It is very well worth your time. Uh, it is paradigm shifting in a lot of ways. And, and like we just mentioned a few minutes ago, um, it's really helpful in the way the arguments are crafted because you're not falling back on God or the Bible um, in, in a way that would maybe turn off somebody right out of the gate. Um, but you can really sort of uh, attack some of their presuppositions by just appealing to the nature of man, the sort of thing that we can see all around us. This is obviously how women act. This is obviously how men act. And um, yeah, they're very well-crafted arguments, very um, simple, but not simplistic. They speak to the layman. Uh, and I just found it really, really edifying. And uh, I appreciate you coming on to talk with, about it, Greg. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. I, I appreciate conversations like this. And uh, I, I had fun writing the book. I, I wrote the book in response to one of my daughters wanted me to teach her boyfriend how to be a man. <laughs> I, I, said, <laughs> I, said, I said, no, I won't do that. But I, it got me thinking, you know, what if I wasn't going to do that, what, what would I write? And that's, that's how this book came about. You got anything else in the works? Oh, I've, I've written a few uh, fiction books. I wrote an introduction to home brewing. Um, so there's some other things out there. This is, this is my best-selling book, and um, I think it's the most important of the things that I've written. Let me ask you briefly, what sort of feedback or pushback have you gotten as a result of this? Well, most of the reviews have been positive. A couple people have given negative reviews. Um, but I think pro- probably the the title and the the subtitle "50 Politically Incorrect Views for Men." I think a lot of people who would not be inclined to like it just don't read it, and that's fine. Um, I, I would like to hear what some other people who disagree with me think about it. And a couple of my friends who come from a very different perspective have read it and given me feedback privately about it, and I, I appreciate that. I actually wrote a second edition that addresses some of the criticisms that that they had. For example, one young woman I know who read it thought that I was, um, she she felt condemned by certain things as if I was criticizing her and her choices. And I wanted to make it clear that I'm not trying to tell anybody how to run their life or what they should do. I'm just trying to say, here's another perspective that you should look at, another perspective that you should consider. And if if you don't like that perspective or don't agree, that's fine. It's a free country. But the, the problem that I see is only one perspective is even spoken aloud these days. You're not even allowed to say certain things. I think Doug Wilson was the one who, who said that uh, the views in my book might even be illegal in the state of Maryland, which is probably true. Uh, so what I want people to do is to, um, is to just allow this other view an opportunity to say, okay, fine, this is what I've heard all my life, these other things, but let's just recognize that there are other ways to look at these issues 
and maybe there's some value in these other ways. Well, great. I will certainly link to the book on Amazon. Uh, is there any anything else you'd like to plug or any site where people can find you if they are interested? Well, people can look on my blog at crowhill.net slash blog. Um, and my books are at uh, crowhill-publishing.com. Let me explain Crowhill. Uh, the name Krabel is a German name, and it comes from the, the Swiss-German area. And the dialect of German that was spoken in that area, Krabel means Crowhill. So that's that's where Crow Hill comes from. Well, Greg, thanks again for your time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, lots of fun. Thanks a lot, Seth. Well, I hope you enjoyed that discussion with Greg. Please go buy his book on Amazon. It's only 99 cents for the Kindle version or 8 bucks for the paperback, and it is well worth your time. I will link to the book and to Greg's websites on the show notes page, as well as to that really fantastic video that he mentioned called The Economics of Sex. I highly encourage you to watch that as well. So again, everything will be at closemindedpodcast.com slash 16. And remember, you're going to buy a face mask anyways, most likely. So you might as well get one that has a cool design or a meaningful message on it. If nobody's going to see your smile in public anymore, then give them something interesting to notice. All those details are at closemindedpodcast.com slash mask. Finally, make sure that you're following the show on Instagram and Facebook. I'll be posting some spicy and provocative quotes from Greg's book there, and you don't want to miss those. And with that, go forth and continue reading with an open mind. See you next time. 